Ritter also has one range of raincoat that he always wears. Yeah. I've never, never, never ever seen him wear a different He has raincoat. one casual outfit. Yeah. <laughs> Basically, that's it, yeah. <laughs> It's Friday, February 28th, and this is the Dutch News Podcast, your weekly chance to catch up with what's been going on here in the Netherlands. I'm Paul Peters, Master Student in Civil Engineering and Monarchy Hater, <laughs> and with me today is Gordon Derrick, Contributing Editor at Dutch News and Provincial Bluff Listener. I'm not sure which of those uh, descriptions is more shameful. <laughs> <laughs> well, definitely yours, <laughs> especially when we're going to cover, uh, tell, tell everybody which province, uh, province you were listening nice. in. Our third regular host, Molly Quell, isn't with us today. She's currently in the high security court in Amsterdam, where Ridohan Tachi is on trial for ruining our podcast schedule. Th- that is by far the worst thing he's ever done. Uh, definitely, yeah. yes. Yeah. Because we are recording it currently on um, Thursday afternoon, Thursday afternoon yeah. instead of our uh, regular Friday yes. morning. Uh, yeah, so, um, so so all of our statistics about coronavirus will be out of date. <laughs> we should, uh, we should <laughs> um, put that in as a disclaimer straight away. <laughs> we should definitely and we do don't it. know what happened to Ajax or our Z this evening either. <laughs> no. So we don't have very much Are you going to really. make some predictions or not? We're just going to... to I think, I think to they're probably both going to be knocked out because mm-hmm. they didn't do very well in the first legs. Oh. But uh, I will I'll be, uh, yeah, um, I will be pleasantly surprised if I turn out to be wrong. <laughs> well, we, uh, you can read everything about it on DutchNews.nl if you yes. want to know it. Uh, so, Gordon, um, <laughs> provincial bluff listener, what on earth? Yeah, is against my here? will. I have against to say, your will. Against, very much against my will. Oh. I was. Um, you were tortured. I, I was. Well, yes, I, I, I was abducted and tortured and taken to Gelderland. <laughs> no, in fact, I was. I was in um, Gelderland because I was picking up a new car. But uh, oh, um, for some reason, why. bluff was on the radio. I think bluff yeah. is always. Somewhere He's always on, on the radio, radio somewhere, isn't he? I, th- I had two different bluff songs in the course of about fifteen minutes. Two. Oh, that's that's. I don't uh, know if it's just Radio Arnhem that particularly <laughs> is particularly fond of uh, bluff, but I certainly got uh, got my fill. <laughs> Poor uh, you. Yeah. Okay, but you have a new car now. Yes. Is I it? Uh, d- did you did you make it bluff free? I've, I haven't made it bluff proof yet. I haven't much I had to do that, but mm. I'm, I'm looking for the setting. Yeah, yeah. The m- I, I kind of did because I can. Uh, I like my <laughs> old car. Was, radio. Well, my old car was extremely primitive. You threw the radio out of the window. Well, the thing is, I can I, I can I can play um, my own. I can play Spotify on, on my new car. Oh, because you have Bluetooth now. It's got Bluetooth. Yeah. Ah, okay. So yeah, because yeah, uh, yeah, so, so, so potentially I may never have to listen. I, I could avoid listening <laughs> to bluff forevermore. This is a very which, uh, which is a real which is worth buying the car for just just in itself really <laughs> yeah, indeed yeah <laughs> and Paul what's uh, your beef with the monarchy this um, week so uh, the royal family is on uh, holiday right now they are skiing in Lech in Austria yes. and as ever there is this um, this this photo yeah they have a photo call don't they yeah, yeah every time they go skiing I I I, um, I saw some journalists complaining that it was the exact same spot as last year. <laughs> Is it not the exact same spot every year? Uh, p- I mean, apparently not. Yeah, I'm not sure, but but it was the same spot as as last year. So right. yeah, it always looks the same though. They are skiing around and uh, but they're yeah, in this nice exactly. Photos. I mean, they're in their skiing gear on snow on skis. It's kind of always the same thing anyway. Yes, but yeah. what was different this year was that uh, Princess Amalia was mm. wearing a very fashionable uh, sunglasses. Right. So uh, there was this nice little video of her that she was. Uh, as she was smiling, she was uh, taking off her uh, her sunglasses. Yeah. Uh, so I made a gif out of it with the caption, uh, "Hey Amalia, do you already know how much money you will get next year? Mm-hmm. Because she will <laughs> receive some what is it, one and a half million euros a year because she turns She's 18, 18. Yeah. and she is uh, at that." moment she can uh, become queen yes basically every moment she's entitled to her own um, uh, money from the state coffers indeed so I made her allowance yeah her allowance yeah yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I made that little joke and (laughs) all of a sudden (laughs) all sorts of uh, uh, monarchy lovers uh, started to uh, harass me (laughs) and ask me why I uh, make fun of made fun of her even though she was just a little girl but yeah she will be a little girl (laughs) a little very rich girl one and a half million years a month a year um so yeah, apparently I'm a monarchy hater now. Right, okay. Even though I'm not, I'm not, not at you all a monarchy you hater. You weren't deferential enough. Uh, yeah, apparently. So yeah, uh, yeah I, I'm, I'm, I'm a fresh monarchy hater. I'm a <laughs> fresh, fresh uh, Republican. Right. Apparently. D- did you get any abuse from a realist bot about this? Ah, no, not yet. Oh, okay, no, not th- yet. I'm sure that's going to arrive at some point. <laughs> I will, <laughs> I will make sure there will be some <laughs> Amalia stuff in there. Yeah. Um, okay. And uh, yes. Uh, so there we are. Um, so yes. So, so plenty of op-ed between you and the and the royal family. Um, what other op-ed has there been this this week? 
Um, the Tweede Kamer is currently on recess, and that means that last week the parliament's agenda was completely filled with debates, and uh, some lasted well into the night. Uh, and when SP MP Sandra Beckerman arrived home after a very long day of debating, she was not only surprised but also annoyed to see that a journalist called Jan Kuitenbrouwer complained about her outfit on Twitter. Mm. Uh, he, he tweeted a photo of, of her with the caption 2020. This is an MP. Right. Um, others I mean, said, in, in what year would that have been acceptable then? I'm not quite I, I don't know. No, I, yeah. I think his criticism was yeah. that apparently in 2020, no, this is standards now... Standards have sort of slipped so much that, yeah, yeah. that, that women don't wear uh, floral dresses in Parliament <laughs> any longer. Indeed, yeah. but w- yeah. because what she was wearing was a very nice blue dress with a leather jacket. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't revealing at all. But people complained that it was too revealing and it, that, that were distracted by it. Yeah. Uh, Becker on tweeted screenshot of the replies with the sarcastic caption tomorrow will be a new day to distract people so so his complaint basically was that men might get distracted by her outfit yeah 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 <laughs> I didn't understand at all why no. did, why it was distracting. The, the, this, I don't remember this argument being brought up when Thierry Baudet turned up in combat gear. Although maybe that was intended to distract It was people. intended to distract. There was a lot of op <laughs> about it, but not because it was too distracting. Yeah. Nobody saw him, basically, because it was, no. he was in camouflage. Yes. Um, the tweet sparked a debate on Twitter on which outfit is appropriate for the Tweede Kamer and which isn't. Uh, this wasn't the first time this happened, though. SPMP Peter Quinn's refusal to wear a jacket resulted in similar discussions, but the best response however came from SPMP Sadat Karabulut, who decided to wear the exact same outfit the next day. <laughs> uh, that, that, that's proper solidarity by the Socialist Party, that is. Indeed. Yeah, yeah. indeed. Yeah, and, and, and Nobody ever talks uh, complains about, like, Hugo de Jong's shoes being distracting <laughs> either, but I'm constantly distracted by it. <laughs> I'm also <laughs> very, very, very distracted by I think, by yeah, it. we need to broaden this, yeah, so I wonder what the, what, what the difference could be. Anyway, so, so, so plenty of up on Twitter about that. Indeed. This week we update you on the coronavirus situation in the Netherlands, uh, which is probably out of date. Uh, uh, it will be. It will be yeah. uh, at the moment we, we record this. Uh, we also talk about uh, which complicated tax avoidance scheme the Dutch flower industry came up with. And we tell you why Thierry Baudet is going to court. Is it because he's being distracted by his colleagues in Parliament? <laughs> uh, in our discussion we tell you why Mark Rutte is suddenly the most hated person in the European Council. That's a turn up for the books. 23 Dutch holidaymakers in Tenerife have been quarantined in their hotel as the outbreak of the coronavirus spreads across Europe. Although all the Dutch guests have tested negative for the virus, they've been barred from leaving after a doctor and three other visitors from Italy were found to be infected. 12 people have died and 11 towns are on lockdown as Italian authorities try to contain an outbreak that was first detected a week ago. Elsewhere, there are fears of an outbreak in Germany after a couple in their 40s from Langbroich, which is a village just five kilometres from the Dutch border with Limburg. One take, cough away. Well, one very yeah, hard cough away. <laughs> were taken to hospital with the virus and the husband is critically ill. It's believed they were infected for up to 10 days before they reported their symptoms and one of the things they did in that time was they took part in a carnival parade. In, in the Netherlands or in Germany? In Germany. Oh, yeah, okay. In February the 15th. Lovely. So obviously they've been in very close contact with lots of people hmm. and there are concerns about that. Three other people who were at the but, carnival but, parade. But the, the plus side is on mm. the carnival parade a lot of people were wearing masks. That's true, yes. Yeah. So there's lots of masks at carnival. Yeah. And hats. And hats. I, I don't know if they protect you. <laughs> uh, three other people who were at the parade have also now been diagnosed. Uh, but Dutch authorities did say that another German man who visited Sittart shortly before falling ill with coronavirus was not infected when he was in the Netherlands. Well, lucky for the people of Sittart. Yes. Um, well, they, they, they need all the luck they can get, really, in Sittart. <laughs> <laughs> That's very true. Uh, and there's also been some good coronavirus news as well, though. Uh, yes, because more than 200 people who were on board the Vestradam cruise ship, um, which is registered in Rotterdam, have been allowed to go home after it turned out that a fellow passenger had been misdiagnosed. Oh. Uh, 83-year-old American woman who'd been on board and then left was reported to have had the virus, um, and that led to the remaining passengers and crew to be quarantined in Cambodia. Uh, but it turned out that she didn't have coronavirus. In fact, she had some other illness. So around 90 Dutch tourists who were on board the vessel have been allowed to, re- to return home. Oh, well, lucky for them. Yeah. Um, and what's the status of the Brexit Muppet? Yeah, this is the question everyone's asking, obviously. <laughs> Very pertinent. Brexit Muppet's handler, Steph Block, also known as the Foreign Affairs Minister, uh, was a focus of speculation this week after he visited Iran. Um, oh, now, officially, of 19 people in Iran have died of the disease, oh. which is the highest total outside.
inside China, uh, Block met an Iranian government minister who had been in contact with a driver who was suspected of having the virus, <laughs> which <laughs> caused some people on Twitter to automatically assume that Steph Block had brought coronavirus <laughs> into the Netherlands. Um, but the foreign ministry told Dutch News that neither Mr. Block nor anyone in his entourage had showed any signs of being ill, and there was no suggestion they were at risk of infection. They also haven't been tested for the virus. But it's notable that we haven't seen much of Brexit Muppets for the last 14 days. That's so, um, suspicious. Yeah, yeah. maybe he's in quarantine somewhere. It could, could well be. Maybe yeah. he showed up in, uh, in Sittard well, or, or in a <laughs> carnival uh, parade in Germany. Well, he could well have been in, in carnival. I mean, he would have mm. blended right in. Indeed. Yeah, so, and, and all that fur could, uh, you know... It's <laughs> must be teeming with viruses and all other things. And on that last point, uh, why aren't the Dutch testing for the virus? Yeah, a few people have raised this point, obviously, because other countries, including Italy and Belgium and France and the UK, have been carrying out a lot of tests for the virus. But the RFM, but did they do that before there was um, a case diagnosed? or? I think they've been uh, gone doing ongoing testing. They've been, they've been doing more, much more kind of population-level uh, testing hmm. in places where uh, the virus has been detected. Hmm. But the RFAM, uh, the public health agency that's responsible for monitoring the disease, says the test is only effective once the amount of virus in the body rises to a level that is enough to trigger symptoms. So, in other words, if you're not ill, there's no point doing the test. Oh, yeah, because you can't see it anyway. Yeah, okay. You can't, you can't diagnose it anyway. No, yeah. no, the test is not reliable. That, right. That's their argument. Around 60 people have been tested, according to Health Minister Bruno Browns, but the RFAM says preventive quarantine is more effective. Browns also hasn't ruled out drastic measures such as isolating neighbourhoods or villages if the virus does reach the Netherlands. But so far there has not been a case of coronavirus in the Netherlands to okay. date. Well, that's, uh, yeah. that's a plus sign. Yeah. Um, yeah, maybe they should just, out of preventive reasons, uh, isolate Sittard. Yes, perhaps. Perhaps. Yeah, yes. Or bluff. Let's let's d- isolate d- let's bluff. Let's isolate bluff. Yeah, yeah we d- must do that. D- 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 yeah, d- d- just throw all his records in the sea. <laughs> <laughs> well, bluff is a virus that has been spreading <laughs> over the Netherlands it for is. way yes. too long. It's been spreading through the airways. Yeah, we need some effective measures to, <laughs> to prevent that from happening ever again. Yeah. Thierry Baudet, the leader of Dutch Nationalist Party Forum for Democratie, has said he plans to take a television station to court for spreading scandalous lies about statements he made in Parliament. The comments were made by television presenter Natalie Wrighton in Sunday current affairs show Buitenhof in an interview with former FVD Senator Henk Otten. Uh, during the interview, Wrighton asked Otten what he thought about Baudet's statements that, quote, the EU had a master plan to replace the white European race by African immigrants referring to comments Baudet had made in Parliament the previous week. Baudet quickly responded with a tweet, demanding Buitenhof to retract the statement or face a court case. He also added a transcription of part of the parliamentary debate in question, as proof the, the presenter had lied, but not the section referred to by Wrighton. Okay, so this is all a bit of a muddle. Let's be clear about exactly what Baudet is objecting to here. Yeah. yeah. So the presenter asked the question, the EU... Uh, had a master plan to replace the white European race by African immigrants. Yeah. Um, Baudet denies that he ever used the word white European race. Yeah, so, yeah. so, so he's complaining that uh, some the, the, the racial elements have been brought into this. Uh, or, or, yeah, his statement has been reworded basically to, to imply that he was making a comment about race when he says he wasn't. No, he says yeah. he was talking about the European identity, which yeah. is something different than race. Yeah, okay. And how did Bautenhoff respond? Buitenhof has said it sees no reason to rectify Wrighton's comments and that their presenter had correctly paraphrased the FVD founder. Uh, during the debate with Labour leader Lodewijk Ascher, Baudet said that money which goes to the EU is being used to set up ferry services to bring immigrants from Africa to Europe to weaken national identities so that there are no longer any nation states. Later in the debate, Baudet stated again that the aim of the EU is multiculturalism and that he is convinced the aim is to weaken traditional European identities. Mm. At the time, Baudet's comments led Deputy Prime Minister Hugo de Jonge to describe the statements as radical and to urge everyone to distance themselves uh, from these statements. So... Um, yeah, it is true that he has only referred to the European identity. He deliberately uses yeah. that phrasing in order to avoid, um, yeah, being uh, being accused of 
racism, but yeah. it's very clear what his underlying. It's a particular. Yeah, it's a very kind of careful form of words, and he talks about weakening national identity, which you know, and then particularly pointing to people from Africa, weakening yeah. national identity. What, what, yeah, what else is that other than? What else can I refer to? Could I refer yeah. to? Yes, and in the past, of course, he's he, he's notoriously been spoken about um, um, homeopathic weakening of European identity through migration. So, yeah, there's, so kind of, there's a constant thread here, isn't it? The migration somehow makes, um, yeah, Europe's kind of uh, identity, which in Baudet's uh, uh, worldview is kind of boreal, i.e., you know, white northern. Um, yeah. So, so, so when you add the pieces together, you know, I don't think. When you see all the statements together, then there is no question on what he is actually meaning. And also using phrases or words as boreal, which is uh, which was widely used by uh, by Nazi theorists and uh, the Nazi Party itself. Then, yeah, it's if you don't want to be considered to be racist, then just don't use these words. Don't use racist dog whistles. Don't use these dog whistles. Everybody knows, even even if you don't use the exact word race, it's kind of all very academic. But here here is Bobade kind of of using the courts, um, or or threatening to take the TV station to court, and a lot of people commented that really it's a situation where Bobade can't lose, because if he he somehow wins a court case, which I think just about everyone expert that I've seen quoted in the media says he won't, Uh, if he somehow wins a court case, then he's got one over the media. If he loses, he'll say, well, the judges are all biased because they're appointed by D66. Indeed, indeed. Yeah. It's a catch-22. Yeah, so you might end up actually using a kind of case against the media um, to undermine the judiciary. Which it's is it's also the same way what uh, it's the same that uh, Wilders did when he was uh, exactly. put on trial for his Minder Minder uh, Marocan, of which he was convicted. He wasn't punished, but he was convicted. Yeah. And yeah, it, it just gives him an issue to say, well, the, the, the judges are against me. The judges are biased. The judges yeah. are des as a sister. Yeah, uh, and of course when he wins a case because he won his previous case and he, he, he says this is a great day for free speech Indeed. so either way he wins or you know he, he can put up a YouTube video claiming to win, <laughs> which yeah. is what really matters yes, from indeed. his point of view so is Bode actually going to bring this to court? Well it is unclear he set a number of deadlines so first he said ratify these co- uh, these comments within the hour or I will bring this to court and then he yeah. said I will bring it to court within the within two days these two days have passed so uh, I'm not sure if he is going to br- actually bring it to court but he hasn't said he won't do it so yeah. it's all a bit fake but given the fact that Baudet isn't keen on judges interfering with politics yeah. and also that he's a, a, a huge uh, uh, defender of freedom of speech yeah. um, it's uh, well, he, sh- he shouldn't bring this to court basically yeah and, and, and according to his own theory he shouldn't yeah. No. And also, given the fact that this all happened on Sunday and we're still talking about it on Thursday, then maybe Baudet has kind of got what he wants, which is attention, attention and publicity. Yes. Yeah. So uh, w- let's just move on <laughs> let's and go move to, on to some next story. Let's banish the stench of lavender and move on to. <laughs> <laughs> let's move from lavender to roses, indeed. The thorny issue of tax avoidance has raised its head in the flower industry. More than a dozen Dutch rose growers. That's why I said thorny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I got it. I got it from the start. More than a dozen Dutch rose growers who are based in Kenya used letterbox firms based in the Netherlands to avoid paying tax in their host country. Investigative journalism platform Investico analysed 32 international growers using information from the Kenyan Chamber of Commerce and the Panama Papers. Usually Dutch international growers refers to marijuana, but this it time does, it yeah. refers to, uh, to roses. It's actually wholesome growing for a change, um, although not so wholesome in terms of their uh, financial arrangements. 14 of them use offshore constructions, including Osirian, which is one of the oldest established Dutch rose growers in Kenya, which is owned by a trust in Liechtenstein, which is itself managed by a trust in the British Virgin Islands. (laughs) (laughs) It's a creative construction. It is. The upshot is that the company achieved a turnover of 47 million euros in 2011, but paid a minimal amount of tax in Kenya. The campaign group SOMO described it as a clear attempt at tax avoidance, but Osirian has denied that it is a deliberate tax avoidance scheme. The Kenyan Flower Council, a lobbying organisation that represents 80% of growers, said it was unaware of the tax avoidance schemes, but taxes in the country are high and the sector is struggling. Perhaps because, uh, I don't know, growers are not paying their taxes. (laughs) Recent droughts have also contributed to a 22% fall in exports. So the first time I heard about these um, uh, rose um, 
her companies in yeah. Kenya, uh, they presented themselves as, oh yeah, we are investing in this third world country. Yeah. We are we are investing in this uh, uh, in the economy of this African nation. Yeah. However, they are not. Apparently, no. they are avoiding the taxes and also um, growing these roses costs so much water, a tremendous amount yeah, of water. Yeah, it is envi- environmentally it puts a big strain on um, already weak infrastructure. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And, and when you distract all this water from the environment and from yeah. uh, neighboring areas, uh, yeah, you are basically uh, uh, hurting the people who are living there because yeah. they have less water. Yes, yeah. Uh, yeah, and you're not even actually investig- investing meaningfully in the infrastructure because that requires tax income, yeah. which they're not paying. No. And um, what has the Dutch flower industry uh, has to say about this? Well, Royal Flora Holland said Dutch growers have brought jobs and expertise to Kenya. However, they've also been criticised for poor working conditions and, uh, as we mentioned, uh, environmental impact. Um, Although most most of them do carry the fair trade label, the industry body admitted that tax avoidance hasn't really been on the agenda up to now. Uh, But a spokesman (laughs) told Investico, perhaps we should talk to those involved. So (laughs) not exactly a hard-hitting response there from Royal Flora Holland. No, well, at least they're not denying it or anything. Well, they they couldn't deny it anyway because it was proven. But yeah, Yeah. uh, if they start talking about it, then uh, I think it's uh, it's the right step forward. Yeah. Uh, But there still needs to be... a lot of stuff done. It's but kind of the perennial third thing, isn't it, with investment in, in the third world? You can come up with a very sort of plausible, positive story about firstly how you're, you're you know you, you're contributing to development of the country, and then you, you have fair trade labels to say you're helping the farmers earn a decent income. But there's always something else. You know, there's always something else that yeah, uh, there's the, always uh, the, the, you're not um, you're not telling. Uh, not open yeah, the, about. The, 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 some part of the story that you, the, yeah, you can use it to kind of greenwash other activities like tax avoidance or environment, environmental damage. Yeah, spring, can sprinkle. Mm-hmm. Some roast water over it. Yeah, <laughs> nobody will notice. So good work from uh, from Investico. Yeah, yeah. The identities of 13 witnesses at next month's MH17 trial are to be kept secret because they face considerable risk. Current affairs program News U reported. Court documents show the 13 have the right to protection because they feel threatened and their health or safety could be compromised by the hearings. Four suspects. Uh, Three Russians and one Ukrainian have been summoned to appear in court for the trial, but they are not expected to come. Um, All are said to have played uh, key roles uh, in the self-proclaimed Donetsk People's Republic in eastern Ukraine, where the book missile uh, which brought down flight MH17 was fired. And this killed all 298 people on board, of which 196 were Dutch. Uh, the documents also show that the four suspects, who are unlikely to appear in court, as I said, um, the documents also show that the four suspects all face charges of murder and manslaughter because they deliberately put an airplane in danger. The four provided the commander and crew of the book missile with telephones and information about the right location where to set up the rocket uh, and organize the transport of the missile as well, the public prosecutor department document states. The first hearings takes place on March 9th and are being held at the high security Schiphol airport courtroom and I believe Molly uh, will be there to, uh, yes. to report about it yes uh, indeed uh, she will so the 13 witnesses uh, they will appear in court but they uh, they'll be anonymous they will be yeah. anonymous the suspects and have been named but they will not appear in court no so yeah. they are not anonymous yes <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah so um, yeah uh, it, it's, it seems to be that the MH17 case is, is finally and slowly coming to an end um, well, real, coming to a start really or yeah coming to, come to a start yeah. Yeah, yeah but we have this of course this very long, uh, very thorough investigation yeah. by the joint investigation team. Um, y- they did tremendous work in identifying um, uh, the people who were involved in, in in firing this missile. Yeah, and also just putting the pieces, literally putting the pieces together again. Whether they rebuilt the the plane from the um, yeah from the parts that were uh, recovered from the from the crash site. Yeah, that so was. Uh, that was very um, yeah. It's been a really forensic exercise, and I guess they're just pl- they're just playing ahead. I mean, there's so many political complications. It's almost certain that the suspects will not go appear in court and will not. So yeah, um, mm. it would be incredibly difficult to get them to serve any kind of sentence that's been handed down. But they're doing what they can. Barring a miracle, Ajax and Azat Alkmaar will be out of Europe by the time you listen to this podcast, which makes the fight for domestic honours all the more significant. Ajax stumbled in the battle of the mythological Greek heroes as they lost 1-0 to Heracles at the weekend. The winning goal was a thumping half-volley on the turn by Heracles' Belgian star Cyril Dessers, and that allowed Azet to cut the gap at the top to three points, courtesy of their 2-0 win over Pek Zvola. 
Both goals were penalties, scored by Captain Tone Copeminers, who could have had a hat-trick if he hadn't missed another penalty earlier in the game. Mm. Um, and sneaking up on the rail, just seven points behind Ajax now, is Dick Advocat's Feyenoord. Yay, Dick Advocat. <laughs> so is. it could be a, a sweet end to the he, season. He's doing really well, He's right? doing incredibly well. Yeah, yeah he's, They've won ten out of twelve games since he took over. Hmm. And their last win was against Fortuna Sittout. Um, they could get <laughs> even closer this weekend, because on Sunday, Ajax and Azet are playing each other in Amsterdam. Are you saying Dick Advocat? Yes. has been in Sittard which he is only d- d- five kilometres he's away gone, he's gone to Sittard only, uh, only a very very heavy cough away from uh, infected German towns hopefully he was wearing some uh, some masks hopefully he was wearing the Brexit Muppet suit <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, yeah, I would pay for that actually <laughs> um, so why has Ron Jans been causing ophef? Ron Jans uh, who was a f- with a former coach of Pex Voller. Um, he did very well on the, when he was the coach. He did yeah. pretty well at Pex yeah. Voller, yeah. And then he moved to FC Cincinnati, but um, he parted company with them uh, last week before mm. they'd actually started the domestic season in acrimonious circumstances over his use of the N-word, um, which didn't go down very well. Um, Jans said he only used the word once when he was singing along to a rap song in the dressing room, mm. but the Players' Union um, carried out an investigation and spoke to various uh, players in confidence, and they said there'd been a number of incidents, and Jans was responsible for what they called an unsafe environment at the club. But back home in Tiernalo in Drenthe, the 61-year-old Jans has been giving into Dutch media in which he said uh, that he was just being naive, he was being too open, he didn't appreciate the cultural differences, and he was absolutely not a racist. Um, the club chairman, on the other hand, said other incidents had come to light um, that made Jans's position untenable. Among other things, he's accused of making inappropriate remarks during a visit to a slavery memorial. Oh, wow. Yeah, so yeah. it's a bit of a messy business. But basically, he, he submit, ended up submitting his resignation and they accepted it. Um, yeah. And uh, no doubt they're wor- working out some kind of compensation package. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, the, it, it, this caused a lot of upheaval in the Netherlands indeed. But first, at first it was... Um, um, uh, at first it looked like he was only singing along with this song. And that was the only incident yeah. for which he was fired. But yeah, later on it turned out that there was were many other things uh, going on. And I'm sure that at the first time he overstepped the mark that he was uh, corrected. Um, I'm sure... Or at least frowned upon. Yeah. But yeah, if you then not act uh, accordingly or not uh, improve your behavior, then yeah, yeah then at some point, I, actually, I, I'm surprised that, that they uh, he lasted so long. Indeed, if he, if yeah. he, if he did what what he if has he been doing all those the particular time. nerves. Yeah, yeah. yeah but he was kind of headhunted to go to Cincinnati, and then he headhunted in turn uh, three Dutch players. Yeah, including former Ajax midfielder Seem de Jong, so it's not clear uh, if that will have any. Yes, hmm. uh, what, what their future is at the club. Hmm human rights organization and two private individuals are taking the Dutch military police Marie to court for allegedly using ethnic profiling during border controls, the NSA reports. The case, which begins on Wednesday, is being brought by Amnesty International, the Lawyers for Human Rights Committee NJCM, and two Dutch people who are claimed to have been checked repeatedly on entering the Netherlands because of the color of their skin. Ethnicity as a selection criterion is discriminatory and not based on any objective or justifiably grounds, the organizations say. The military police admit that ethnicity forms part of its controls, which are aimed at combating illegal immigration, passport fraud and people trafficking, but denies it is the only reason to stop people. We work with risk profiles in which ethnicity is one of a number of characteristics taken into account when carrying out spot checks, a spokesman of the Marseille told the paper. However, lawyers say decisions to stop people are often based on prejudice, which lead to discrimination. NJCM was recently also successful in banning the Dutch government's algorithm-based fraud detection system, Siri, because it conflicts with the European Treaty on Human Rights and with privacy legislation. And we discussed it on uh, yeah. a previous episode. We discussed that on a recent, recent podcast. In a recent yeah. podcast, and we will link to that uh, in the liner notes if you Indeed. want to know more about Siri. And yeah. it's not the Apple uh, No, it's, uh, it, no, it's uh, not. No, it's, a, it's a different type of Siri yeah. altogether. So, uh, yeah, it's uh, um, racial profiling is already illegal in the Netherlands. It's yeah. forbidden. Yes. Um, it's, so I'm quite surprised that the military police uh, admitted that they are doing yeah, that. Yeah, it's kind of... I know one of the um, complainants is a D66 councillor from Eindhoven. He, he, he um, put in a private uh, complaint one, the last time that he was checked at the airport and he was pulled out of the queue and he said, this is purely based on the colour of my skin. And uh, I think the complaint was upheld, but then the Marche kind of somehow uh, insisted that uh, it wasn't a case of racial profiling. 
I'm not mm. quite sure. No, it's it, it, it's uh, yeah. So it, it seems to be a kind of recurring uh, recurring issue. Incidents they say are not um, um, they're not uh, racial profiling. Then, uh, but nevertheless, it turns out to only only uh, target one particular uh, group of people. Yeah, especially because this um, this alderman from Eindhoven, he was uh, he said that he he he's picked out every time he's in the queue. Yeah. Um, so yeah, at some point it's uh, it's no longer coincidence of course yeah um so yeah i'm just curious to see what uh, uh, uh what the judge will say uh, especially given the fact that ritual profiling is already illegal and they basically admit that they are doing it so yeah, yeah but what 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 will happen well, what then? defense can they have yeah yeah it'd be interesting to see We'll be discussing Prime Minister Mark Rutte and the frugal force performance in Brussels after this word from our sponsors. If you want to show your love for the Dutch News podcast in a more permanent way than splashing out on a dozen tax-averse red roses, why not sponsor us on Patreon? It costs time and money to take the week's raw news and political developments and mash it into something more palatable, and we greatly appreciate the support of our patrons. To show our appreciation, we'll give you a shout-out and let you ask us a question. This week we say a big thanks to new patron John Heinz, who is Canadian but fully in Geburgert in Delft, where he's been living for about 25 years, he tells us. His question's about Truby. He says, quote, I suppose she is the fourth member of your staff. What is her role? Does she keep your feet warm or does she provide editorial supervision? Uh, well, first of all, John, I think we need to point out that Truby is in fact a boy. Oh, yeah, <laughs> just one. Yeah, he is a boy. <laughs> so, yeah, 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 it's yeah. not Truby. I can see the confusion. Truby is similar to various girls' names like Trudy. Um, oh, yeah, 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 definitely. Yeah, he's, he's, named, named, he's named after a beer. Yeah. yeah. Molly names all her talks after a beer. Indeed. Yeah, this one is Truby. So he's a boy. And yeah, yeah, yeah there is a fair bit of editorial supervision, I think, uh, Truby. He's, he's certainly kind of... Uh, um, he's, yeah, u- he's usually on the couch uh, somewhere in the yeah, he's in the somewhere studio. on the couch and um, he, he basically decides uh, who, who he, he takes a key role in deciding who gets to actually present the podcast each week because <laughs> he can't get in the door without getting past him <laughs> indeed yeah he, he allows yeah. us in or not yeah. uh, depending on his mood and um, uh, also sometimes he uh, interferes with the uh, with the with the podcast yes. recording sometimes he disagrees with something he yeah, says and, and then, then you he hear a loud bark the yeah indeed um, so yeah he's, he has an important role yeah very important role it doesn't do much of a job of keeping feet warm though I have to say no 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 yeah, no, no. He, he needs to work on that yeah we also have a question from Jamie Ogilvie Sonnefeld who's been sponsoring us for a few weeks um he has a very specific question asking us how the Dutch authorities decide on traffic control measures uh that's in the week of a recent accident he had on his bike uh, involving an HGV lorry and a blind spot he says he's fed up with being told that uh, that crossing is notoriously dangerous well, first of all, Jamie, we're very sorry to hear about your accident, and we hope you're recovering well. Yes. Um, we did get in touch with a road safety organisation, SVOF, S-V-O-F, who told us that municipalities uh, are mostly responsible for traffic control. Uh, they have a number of options to make roads safer, like separating cycle paths from the roadway at junctions, um, putting little islands in between, um, or using what are known as Opgeblaze Fiets Opstelstrogen. Uh, okay, uh, I wasn't call. aware that this wasn't there was a thing. No, uh... Is awful name. Oh uh, yeah, abbreviated <laughs> to Offos. Offos. Um, oh. I, I don't quite know what these are. Opkablaza no, feeds up to the no, 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 no. Um, it's certainly, I guess, are these kind of the raised cycle paths that oh, they run beside be. the road? I'm not sure. And the idea is that they make cyclists more visible to lorry drivers and obviously people who sit higher up yeah. in the traffic who might not see them. Uh, and they're also developing camera networks and uh, th- uh, monitoring systems to check uh, traffic safety. There is a strategic plan to make traffic safer through preventive measures, such as warning road users about potential potential danger spots but they say um, one of the problems with that is that uh, because cyclists going uh, cycling in a straight line have a priority it's not actually their responsibility to watch out for lorries it's uh, the lorry that's supposed to watch for the cyclist yeah yeah yeah, yeah, Um, so so there are legal restrictions on what they can do Um, there's also apparently legal restriction on uh, that uh, any of these warning cameras can't sort of uh, make alarm sounds because uh, you're not allowed to make Know, t- too um, many different types of noise in traffic yeah. it's too confusing yeah yeah, yeah. Um, yeah basically whenever you see a lorry <laughs> in front of you then you're gonna have to be very 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 yeah. cautious and yeah just um uh, that's the best thing you can do basically but yeah, yeah still s- accidents happen of course yeah indeed um, and the, the school children uh, uh, i know are made very aware of you know um, staying out of the blind spot uh, the doy hook the doy the, the dead yeah. corner the dead which corner. is uh, appropriately named yeah um so yeah that's uh, kind of it uh, the road safety lobby group Nederland also has a page on its website where you can report dangerous traffic situations at um, which is Participati 
www.fefeo.nl we'll put a link, <laughs> link to that in oh, the line notes. luckily <laughs> we will do that yeah <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, yeah but you can basically just report it to the gemeente and I'm sure yeah. the gemeente has on the website uh, some sort of uh, yeah uh, form or whatever where you can yeah, re- where you can contact them yeah I know they per- periodically um, put kind of leaflets through your door when they're doing like a local um, you know road building plan in oh, yeah, that as well too. they do that kind of thing they've informatiafond and <laughs> look out for one of those things we'll go and have coffee with the commander and complain about the traffic situation it may make a difference I don't know yeah well, there, there, there are a lot of um, if I if I uh, come to think of it there are a lot of um, like little corners on the street which are all of a sudden broken up and yeah. then uh, 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 they redesign and they redesign yeah. it or when the, when they when they are finished and you come back then you notice that nothing has changed and then apparently they improve the traffic situation <laughs> somehow <laughs> yes, yeah. you don't know how but it's a magical did. way it's in a magical way so yeah, yeah sometimes it uh, if enough people uh, report these kind of situations then in the end they will they do, do something, something about, about it, it. Yeah, yeah no I, I know near me that they rebuilt a junction that was quite notorious so that and, and turned it into a roundabout you know, yeah and obviously then the cyclists then have their own little lane on the roundabout and there's you know there's islands in between to yeah. make it safer for them and so especially they, when they, they do involves cyclists then yeah. uh, then then they are very keen on improving it so yeah just contact the gemeente and hopefully um, yeah they will improve it yes Prime Minister Mark Rutte went to Brussels last Friday for a summit on the new European Union budget, together with his new friends Austria, Denmark and Sweden, better known as the, the Frugal the Four. The Frugal Four, yes. There should be some kind of new superhero team. I think. Yeah, the, the worst yeah, superhero yeah. team in the world. Captain Zuinig. Captain Zuinig, yeah, yeah, and the Frugal Four. <laughs> While they get along pretty well, this is not the case anymore for Rutte's old BFFs, Germany and France. Rutte's behavior at the summit was described afterwards by German Chancellor Angela Merkel as childish, mm. and the French President Emmanuel Macron called him arrogant. So we ask ourselves what on earth happened in Brussels last Friday, why did Rutte behave the way he did, and perhaps did he overstep his yeah, mark? And what do you have to do to be called arrogant by a French president? <laughs> president? <laughs> wow, yeah. yeah so t- to begin with, uh, why were they having this summit? The EU leaders met in Brussels to discuss the new EU budget. Mm. Uh, the budget covers the years 2021 to 2027, so it's a quite a huge budget. Yeah. Uh, and the leaders has to agree to it basically unanimously because everyone has a veto right. Yeah. Uh, naturally, these negotiations always lead to very heated debates between EU leaders who all have to protect their own interests. Uh, for example, the most notorious example is, of course, the French farmers. Yes. They depend very heavily on EU subsidies, so France wants to reserve a quite a substantial portion of the budget for agriculture. Yeah. So the negotiations they has been go- have been going on since 2018, so quite a long time now, uh, and not a lot of progress has been achieved. So Charles Michel, who we all thought last week was still the Prime Minister of Belgium, <laughs> yes. but apparently he has a new role now. He's the, um, he's the, the chair of the yes, European Council. Yes, he's taken Council. over from uh, Donald Tusk. Yeah, yeah, I completely missed that. Yeah. But he called on the summit to uh, finally uh, yeah, reach an agreement on the new budget. Right, uh, Yeah, and this is a budget of um, somewhere in the order of uh, a trillion euros for yeah. seven years so yeah. a lot of money a lot of uh, money but the exact figure of course has been well the, the the bone of contention in many ways so what was Mark Rutter's aim when he went to the summit he basically doesn't want to spend more money yeah. on the EU uh, so in a surprise uh, move he doesn't want to spend any more money he just wants everyone <laughs> to go around in a battered old Volvo <laughs> No, uh, it's a it's a sap. A sap. Sorry, yeah, sap. it could have yes. easily been a Volvo, though. But <laughs> it's a sap. Um, Rutte doesn't want to expand the EU budget. He also wants to reform the EU budget, and he wants to prevent the EU from um, yeah. uh, taxing money on its own. Yeah, and of course, one of the th- reasons the EU budget is shrinking is because um, the EU is smaller now. The EU is smaller now because uh, the UK has left. There is a sm- there's this slight issue of, <laughs> of uh, the UK leaving the yeah. European Union, and that means that there is a gap of seventy five billion. Uh, euros annually on the EU budget. This has to be resolved. And Mark Rutte basically says, well, the EU is smaller now, so we don't have to spend yes. as much money as we did before. But the EU uh, has a different opinion. They yeah. still want to uh, spend the same amount of money. And this gap needs to be filled yeah. by the other EU members. Yeah, so basically the argument is, do we cut the EU budget now the UK isn't in the EU, or do we keep the same budget and have expect the other nations to make up the difference? Yes. The, the, Guess the, which uh, yes. thing Mark Rutte wants. Yeah, yeah he, wants cut, he wants to spend less money. He wants to uh, spend less money indeed. Yeah. What also is uh, happening now, because the uh, UK is leaving the EU, it means that the Netherlands 
is losing one of its key allies within yes. the EU because especially on terms of the budget and also on border control the UK has always been the Netherlands' uh, number one partner yeah. so we're, we're, we're losing them now so we need to find new, new friends, allies, new allies, new, yeah, new, new coalitions yeah. so um, Mark Rutte went out was looking for uh, a new coalition. He has been going for the past years to, for example, the Baltic states, which are yeah. the smaller countries. And basically, Margaret's uh, strategy was, if I find enough smaller countries, because the Netherlands is, of mm. course, quite small, if I find enough uh, smaller countries which we I can bring together, then we can form yeah. a huge block yeah. or a substantial you, you block. You can kind of acquire the voting power to compensate for the fact that he no longer has the, the, the UK on his side. Indeed. Yeah. So now he has found, on this particular issue, the budget, he has found... Uh, a coalition, a partner in crime with Austria, Denmark and Sweden and yeah. together they call themselves again, we've yes. got the Frugal <laughs> the Four. Frugal four. <laughs> the Frugal Four. Uh, the, the, the most dreaded name in the EU <laughs> yeah. currently. And while they, they do form a substantial block because they have a shared economy which is larger than Italy or Spain, mm. it's smaller than the UK, France or Germany, but it's close. Yeah. So yeah, it's quite a substantial block. Yeah. And uh, they all share the opinion that the EU budget must not be larger than 1% of the EU's total GDP. Yeah. As a consequence, they oppose the budget proposal of Charles Michel, whose budget is 1.074% of the total EU GDP. And it's a very hard yeah. uh, demand from these um, uh, frugal four. They say we don't want to spend more than 1%, yeah. so this 0.74% well, yeah. is too yeah. much. And well, 1% is kind of the current level, isn't it? So, so the, um, the, yeah. the, the Commission's proposal was to raise it to 1.11%, um, and then Michel came in with this compromise deal which was 1.074%. Which this still accounts to 1,100 billion euros. Yeah, so it's 1.1 trillion. It's, it's still a considerable amount of money. Yeah, yeah. But it's um, less than what the European Commission is proposing. Yes, indeed. And the European Parliament, of course, is proposing even more. Yeah, yeah. so uh, <laughs> it's already quite... Uh, yeah. qu- quite some some billion yeah. of euros less than yeah. what the others are proposing. So these these sound like very small differences when we're talking about sort of zero point zero four percent, but actually in terms of hard cash, it's it's, it's, uh, it's quite it's a big enormous. difference. Yeah, 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 yeah. But but it is spread over seven years. So yes. So what are Gutter's exact um, objections to the the uh, budget proposal that's on the table? Yeah, well, we already mentioned that, but he basically thinks that the UK has left the EU, so we don't need a bigger budget. As a result of the proposal of Jean-Michel, the Netherlands will have to pay, instead of 5 billion euros, 7 billion euros. And that increase of 2 billion euros is unacceptable for the Netherlands, Mm. especially because Rutte says the Netherlands is already the largest net payer in the EU, EU, meaning that they they pay more than they get from the EU in terms of subsidies. But the EU points out that it is true that the Netherlands is one of the largest net contributors. It's also uh, the largest beneficiary of the EU in terms of its economy, because Mm. the Centraal Planbureau has calculated that every Dutch person earns 1,500 to 2,200 euros more thanks to the Netherlands' membership to the EU. Yeah, th- this is per year, right? This is per yeah, year, yeah. yeah, yeah. So that is quite a lot of yeah. money. Yeah, this is the, the, the kind of thing, it's a really hotly disputed point whenever this comes up about net payers and net uh, beneficiaries. It's very hard to calculate exactly yeah, how the money spent in one country has knock-on benefits for other countries. So things like border security, obviously you give all that money to Italy and Greece because they're on the southern border of Europe. Nevertheless, yeah. that has benefits for countries all over the rest of Europe in terms of not having to take in so many refugees and migrants. Yeah, so, so it's yeah. really difficult to see uh, who is actually benefiting from which money which yes. is spent where. Do we benefit from a bridge which is constructed in Bulgaria? Well, probably not, but in a way we will because yeah. that will improve the economy there. And yeah, and things like I mean, the, the fact that we have the Schengen Open Border Zone, which the Netherlands benefits tremendously from because it's much easier to export things, yeah. um, is based on having secure borders around the edge of Europe. So, yeah. Yeah, which so it's very difficult to calculate, but yeah, yeah. Uh, that, that's why it is quite a huge range between 1500 and 2200 euros yeah but yeah we we're gonna have to uh, trust the safe bay uh, on this i think uh, and why rutte is also taking this stance it has to do with some domestic pressure yes because there, were, there was a motion calling on the eu budget to be uh, decreased passed in the tweede kamer with almost unanimous yeah. support only groen links and labor opposed yeah. it and also it's still more than a year before the new elections yes uh, but other parties are, are already preparing for it yeah. and already taking <coughs> a lot of drastic uh, positions, yeah. sort of preparing for the for the election campaign. And yeah. Margrethe feels the hot breath of 
anti-EU parties yeah. as the PVV and Forum for Democracy. Yeah, so there's one way you can get Dutch politicians to agree with each other. It's on uh, agreeing to spend less money, especially <laughs> if it's somebody else, yeah. somebody else's money. Yeah, um, yeah but, but, but yeah, um, as you say, when you bring the uh, election in as a factor, you can see that uh, if Europe does become a, an issue during the election, it is mainly going to be dominated by this question of um, how much money the Netherlands pays in uh, versus how much it gets back. And yeah. the general consensus seems to be um, that uh, the Netherlands is, is is one of the big net payers. Yeah. Which uh, obviously is going to drive, I think, anti-EU sentiment, because that's certainly how it worked in Britain. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. And if you don't tell the, the true story, yeah. uh, especially of this 1,500 euros, which everyone earns every year because mm. of membership of the EU, then, yeah, it feels 5 billion euros or 7 billion euros, that, that is a huge increase, of course. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah, you can just spin it around in a, in a very anti-EU Rhetoric. Yeah, and it's you can say that you know the, the the other countries in Europe, the the Greeks or the Italians, are living off money from the Dutch taxpayers. When the the real story is a lot more complicated. Yeah, indeed. So yeah, yeah Rutte senses that, and yeah. he is probably yeah. uh, taking that uh, prospect with him to Brussels as well. Yeah, and of course the other hot button issue that comes up that's related to that is the rebates. Of course, yeah. the, the, the the net the, again the uh, the countries that call themselves net payer countries, they tend to have rebates, or you know they get some money back, or a re- reduction in the amount they. Have to pay. Wasn't it first um, negotiated by Margaret Thatcher? Yes, it was. So the yeah. first rebate was the British rebate negotiated by Margaret Thatcher. And since then, other countries, mainly wealthy northern countries like uh, the Netherlands and Denmark, have negotiated rebates as well. I remember Britain negotiated one at the at a budget summit, I think, back in about 2015. Um, and yes, and again, obviously now there's every time there's a budget discussion, again the question of the rebates comes up again, and there's pressure from countries in the south and the east of Europe to uh, to abolish the rebates. And there's a very strong defence of the whole rebate system by the country that uh, benefit from it. <laughs> yeah, we'll receive so, the rebates, yeah. Yeah, so, so, so a lot of self-interest uh, yeah. uh, swimming, swimming around. Indeed. So what uh, happened uh, when they actually had the summer at, at the weekend? Well, because of Rutte and the other Frugal's uh, stubbornness and refusal to budge in on the 1% demand, the summit reached an impasse quite soon after it started. In an effort to break the deadlock, uh, President Macron wanted to speak to each leader individually, but Mark Rutte refused to speak to the French president alone without the other leaders uh, of the Frugal Four. And it was after this incident Macron called Rutte arrogant and said his behavior was shocking. At 7 a.m. the next day, the summit was broken off without uh, reaching any agreement. Mm. An EU diplomat was quoted by the Volkskrant saying that if you don't want to talk, then just stay away. Mm. Uh, The Spanish prime minister, Pedro uh, Sanchez, also um, was not able to hide his irritation. He (laughs) asked, uh, does Rutte know I represent more citizens than the frugal four countries combined? That's true, but in terms of economic power yeah. uh, Rutte represented a more um, more GDP more GDP yes. so mm. yeah that's also interesting yeah. which is more important than number trade-offs. of and last but not least Angela Merkel described Rutte as childish mm. and <laughs> what added to her annoyance was Rutte's <laughs> comments to the media that he had brought a new Chopin biography to read <laughs> during the summit yeah yeah. the context is obviously Rutte is quite an accomplished pianist he almost became a concert pianist when yeah. he was younger and uh, yes but that obviously he didn't strike a chord with Angela Merkel there, <laughs> <did he? laughs> well the wrong chord yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. yeah so and that was quite a striking remark given that Merkel and Rutte have been on very friendly terms for many many years really going back for as long as Rutte's been Prime Minister basically yeah they are they are, so, they are currently the, the most yes. senior EU leaders in, within the European Union and Angela Merkel has announced that she will step down as German Chancellor and yeah. uh, if Margrethe is able to win the elections uh, in March next year then yeah. uh, he will definitely be the most senior EU yeah. leader in the council yeah. So, but they've mostly walked in step through that time I mean certainly through the whole uh, Brexit negotiations I think Rutte and Merkel were really quite close, Very close um, in yeah. those discussions uh, yeah, Rutte famously has a, has, a, has a photograph of Merkel on his desk isn't he? in, 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 <laughs> yeah. in a tournament here so yes yeah, so, and they, um, <laughs> I don't know maybe, maybe, he's, maybe he's gone back and turned that around now <laughs> <laughs> but nevertheless it, it was quite striking but that thing in turn makes you wonder how much of this is kind of theatre and um, you know kind of I think it was voting by the politician a bit of grandstanding I think it was know, a lot of grandstanding um, at some point yeah. I know was that there's a, a diplomat quoted in the false account as well saying they expected that in the end the frugal four would be brought around and some kind of compromise would be reached of course I expect and that as well that's, that's how European that's politics what, works that's, isn't it, that's really? how it always yeah. works everybody yeah. is, is, is is fighting with each other and there's some drama yeah. and in the end perhaps the frugal four will get this yeah. uh, you this have to turn up with this kind of very entrenched position you have to play to your electorate back home I think this is the key thing and Rich yeah. has to show that he's he has to talk tough now and yeah. say that he, he's in favour of you know being 
financial discipline and being frugal and being prudent but ultimately you know there's always room to maneuver and he's also quite a master negotiator and he'll come away with this you would think that they will come work out some kind of compromise there'll be some kind of deal like that they'll keep their rebate or something like that you know so that everyone you know can go back with a positive story to tell the voters back home ultimately that's how these european summits work indeed but there's no denying that everybody thought he was very annoying at this summit it reminds us of uh, when he was uh, uh, in his early of his early years of his prime ministership back then he was also known within the european to be very negative and to be stubborn and to to block basically every proposal Uh, but this changed when in the refugee crisis he almost single single single-handedly negotiated this deal with turkey yes and at that moment, he thought, oh, when I uh, have this constructive attitude, then I yeah. can actually I mean, I achieve something. Europe. Yeah. yeah, and work within Europe, Europe, then I can actually achieve something. And at that moment, he sort of changed his attitude and he became this person that sort of... He became suddenly a lot more pro-European, didn't he? He, he also became very... Uh, yeah. yeah. I kind of think, yes, yeah, so I suppose that situation is different because that was where Europe was kind of working as a as a block with um, a third party, with the Turkish government, and which was obviously to, to get Turkey's taking refugees and ease the the stress on Europe's borders. So that made sense. This is a kind of more of, a, more of an internal more European yeah, discussion. So that's yeah. why I think the language is different there. Yeah. So what is going to happen now? Well, yeah, as we said, uh, they will work something out. Yeah, now something, yeah. they will, yeah. they will work It is kind of stand as well. It's, it's very rare these things get sorted out at the first summit. There's usually a second or a third summit before they actually pull the rabbit out of the hat and a uh, compromise is reached. Yeah. Usually about sort of two in the morning after yeah. Yeah. Uh, when it's very early. <laughs> I expect that the frugal four will, will get some sort of rebate or they yeah. will or uh, compromise or yeah. compromise or uh, these countries, the the Netherlands and uh, Austria, they will gonna have to pay one percent of their GDP instead yeah. of something like that. There they may well be a rebate out. worked out that adds up the amounts to that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then Rutte has also got the issue, of course, with uh, he wants the budget to be more efficient and less spending on agriculture. Which yeah, is so what, maybe there's something to get. So to there gain may be there some well. com- yeah, so, so some concessions to be found there yeah um so yeah so, so basically it's going to run around there, there'll be at least one more summit and we'll uh, try and keep you up to date on um, mark Rutte, captain <laughs> zanach and the frugal four <laughs> not too much though. <laughs> no. well that's all we have for you this week this podcast is a production of dutch news which can be found online at dutchnews.nl we will include links to everything we've talked about today in the liner notes you can get in touch with us by email to podcast at dutchnews.nl if you want to help us out please subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating and you can now back us on patreon at patreon.com dutchnews.nl and earn yourself a free shout out on the podcast. My thanks to uh, Gordon Derrick and not to Molly Quell. Yeah. I'm Paul Peters and we'll be back next week. Yeah, no thanks to Ritter and Taggy. No, 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 no. He's completely messed us around this week. <sighs>